Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, how to age well through mental and physical exercise. If you use it a lot, if you keep it strong, if you challenge it, your body ages well. So the same thing happens with the brain. Plus, the challenges of successful kidney transplants. The chances for you donating a kidney today and dying from the procedure is the same as if you happen to be behind the steering wheel right now being involved in a fatal car accident. And we talk about the relationship of food availability to several social issues. Unfortunately, in, in certain areas, in particular in the city, there's less access to healthy foods. There aren't a lot of supermarkets in the city, um, and a lot of the stores that do sell food don't have the healthiest options available. We'll also hear a selection from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we learn of the latest about kidney transplants. Plus, we examine the essential role that food plays in social justice. But first, how to achieve lifelong brain health. Well, research has taught us that the human brain is highly dynamic, constantly reorganizing, and is malleable across its entire lifespan. And it can generate new brain cells critical to learning and memory throughout its life. So how does it change with time? And what do we need to ensure that we maintain our brain health as we age? Well, here with some answers is Patrick Van Beveren. He's a doctor of physical therapy and the physical therapy supervisor from the centers at St. Camillus. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you for having me, Linda. So let's just review quickly what happens to our brain as we age, and what do we have to be mindful of then? Well, I, I really think you can equate it to your body. It is so variable how the brain ages based on how we use it. So just like your body, if you use it a lot, if you keep it strong, if you challenge it, your body ages well. So the same thing happens with the brain. And it does go back to that adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm -hmm. So the more we use our brain, the more we challenge ourselves, the more social we are, the better our brain ages. That's a really, I think, a key point. And you're saying that's true throughout the lifespan. Throughout the lifespan. And the research shows the earlier we challenge it and the more we challenge it, the more reserve we create. Now, we can't stop the aging process. We're going to lose as we age. But if we, if we challenge ourselves and we start out on a very high level, as we lose it, we really maintain our function well into older age. That's really very hopeful. And it strikes me that um, it's, it says a lot for the importance of education, obviously, and the continuation of keeping your brain active, as you've said. So, so you, it's not like putting, you're not saying to people, so at a certain point, put down the basketball and pick up the book. It's more like both. Well, as it turns out, exercise, or even more generally, physical activity really is the anti-aging intervention. It, it helps the body, but it helps the brain. One thing to keep in mind, though, is all exercise is not created equal. So it, it turns out for the brain that aerobic exercise, exercise that stresses your cardiovascular function is what's good for the brain. And there's also an adage for that. What's good for the heart is good for the brain. Very good. But let me help us clarify, because I know that sometimes people don't exactly understand when we say aerobic exercise. Right. Give me some examples. Uh, biking, walking, running, swimming, skiing, anything where you're going to get out of breath a little bit. That's challenging your aerobic system. So is it, you mentioned that it's something that you should start early, but is it ever too late 
to start focusing on some of these things? It's never too late. It's And again, it's just like the body, that it's never too late to start working on strengthening exercises, which maintain your function. It's never too late to start working on those activities that challenge the brain. And you not only do you decrease the decline that occurs, but you also have the capacity to improve at any age, and those studies have been done. I think that's, again, very hopeful and very, very, I think a lot of people don't quite understand that in the lay population, that you really can be improving your brain, even as you say you lose some of your functioning. And I think there's a lot of people who tend to think that they're, they're controlled by genetics, which is not true. Lifestyle is hugely important. And, and again, it's for, you know, lifestyle for how we function with our body and lifestyle how our brain is able to age successfully. So what exactly, well, let me just take a step aside for a minute. When we talk about our brain and our brain health, very often people think we're talking mostly about things like memory, especially as we age, because I think that's the first thing that people feel that they begin to lose. You know, can't think of a word, can't think of a person's name, you know, where did I put my keys, those kinds of things. But it's much more than that, isn't it? It, it is, but first let me talk just a minute about that. It's one thing to forget which, where you put your keys. It's a very different thing to forget what the keys are for. And, and people should not become so paranoid about you know, their memory loss. But you're right, the brain is multifunctional. And, and there's very higher level types of activities that also play into cognitive health. Decision making, judgment, the ability to socialize, uh, thinking, planning, um, analyzing, perhaps analyzing problem solving. All of those functions, and and that's a way also to judge where you are in terms of your cognitive health. So where, so what exactly should you be doing? I guess, and and where should you begin? If if let's say you decide. Maybe I haven't been doing as much for my brain at a certain point in my life that I could be doing. I mean, many of us get caught up in rote tasks after our education ceases, let's say, and we get involved in our job, but we don't necessarily do things to expand the way we think or challenge our brains. So what are the kinds of things we should be doing? Well, I think directly related to challenging our brain, they're like taking uh, classes, educational classes, learning a language late in life, learning how to use the computer. All of those things are very good in terms of mental stimulation. But you can't separate that from what I refer to as the big three. And that's physical activity, good nutrition, and stress reduction all of which also play into how we age cognitively. Tell me a little bit more about that, but first I want to say, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with aging specialist Patrick Van Beveren, and we're talking about how to keep the brain healthy lifelong and perhaps even prevent dementia. So the big three, state them again, and let's talk about examples. Physical activity, nutrition, and stress reduction. Okay, so physical activity, generally stay active. And if you're going to start any place, you get your biggest bang for your buck from physical activity. Unfortunately, we've become a very sedentary society. Things are too easy. Things are too easy. And most of our inventions are to make our life easier. And it gives us the perception that easy is good. It's not hard is good. Challenge is good, both for the body and for the mind. So physical activity is a broad category. And, and do the things that you enjoy. If exercise happens to be one of those, that's one form of physical activity. But you're saying staying physically active on the move is really pretty much something you should do on a daily basis. It's critical. And, you know, I am working at a nursing home. And I often see people who are either sitting down or laying down 22 hours a day. You know, they are not getting stronger. They're not stimulating their mind. 
physical activity is really big. But what you're also suggesting is long before you get to that point, perhaps, if you have these kind of practices throughout your life, the chances are that you'll have a greater reserve as you reach those senior years and beyond, you know, really even older old age. So tell me about nutrition. So what kind of general statements would you make about that? Is it important to watch what you eat, for example, and uh, weight control, those kinds of things? Again, if you keep in mind what's good for the heart is good for the brain, we become very familiar with what's good for the heart. And basically, if you're eating plants and, and fruits and avoiding animal products, you're doing good things for your heart. Well, it's the same for the brain. Aerobic activity gets blood to the brain, but you've got to have the right nutrition in the blood. So you have to have quantity of blood, but also quality of blood, and that's how nutrition plays into that. That's a very good good, um, visual metaphor, actually, to think about what nutrients you're driving to the brain. So that depends on what you take in. Right. So tell us about stress reduction. Why is that important? Stress releases certain chemicals in the body that causes a deterioration of, of the brain cells. And we live in a very stressful society. And the way we react to stress, it, it, it's referred to as a fight or flight response. So those chemicals that are released, uh, they, they key us up. They put us in in a um, situation to fight. Yeah, so like our a defense, heart rate goes defensive up. Defensive or offensive posture. Right, and and that it's not good for the heart. It's not going to be good for the brain either. So throughout your life, it sounds to me to at least to recognize levels of stress within you, and perhaps throughout your life, develop better and better ways of reducing those stress chemicals or reducing those stress reactions. Right, um, and and. If you just read any of the popular literature, there are um, information about how to do relaxation. Um, and, and if you can do that, that's great. But also, if you find things that relax you, listening to music, going to the movies, you know, and I think it, it, to cut across to everything, socialization is huge. A lot of older adults become very isolated. If you're socially active, you're using your body, you're staying physically active, you're challenging your mind. You can't socialize without thinking what the person's talk about, planning what you're going to say, remembering what you did so that you can tell other people. And and typically, socialization relaxes you. So if you can keep people in social situations, it helps with everything. Just briefly, in the little time we have left, you I know we're involved in, a, in, in some kind of a course, actually, through HealthLink locally mm-hmm. to help probably senior citizens largely to kind of address some of these issues and become more aware of them. Give me an example of how you would recommend someone beginning, if they haven't done... I mean, one would hope you've done some of these things throughout your life, but if you wanted to kind of like turn over a new leaf and start to really kind of focus on the big three, give me an example of what a week might be like. And again, it's like taking on an exercise program. I would recommend start low, go slow, be successful. So you're going to do something where you have to be physically active. Take a walk. Maybe just two or three times a week, maybe just a quarter of a mile. Just get started. Pick something nutritionally that you know is not good for you. Just drop it out. Don't eat it. Or pick something you know that is good for you nutritionally and start to eat it. And again, only plan. Maybe it's fish. Maybe you're going to have fish once that week because you know that that is good for you. And then stress reduction. Put aside a time. It might be five minutes. It may be two or three days a week. Put aside a time where you're going to do something that helps you to relax. And get in the habit of doing it and then build upon that as you go. Oh, that's really excellent advice. Very excellent advice. Have you found that in teaching these types of principles, people have latched on to them? Have they been successful in their efforts? Within our classes, we do what we call action plans. And and we constantly go back to people form a plan. And then we ask them, 
Did you stick to it? And when they don't, then everybody in the class talks about, well, how can you make it better so you're going to stick to it? And by the time we get to the end of our six-week class, people have an action plan for stress, for physical activity, for nutrition, for wow. mental stimulation, and people are sticking to it. And now we're doing follow-up classes also, so they get a chance to come back once a month and talk about where they are with their action plan. That sounds unbelievably wonderful. Well, I wish you all the best with that endeavor and it sounds like this advice is good even without a class people can can get started absolutely and it's very hopeful to think that if you do these kinds of things especially the big three that you really can maintain your brain health there's no there's no doubt about it there's a preponderance of research out there that says you can and all we've done is take what's in the literature and apply it to a classroom situation. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Patrick Van Beveren. He's a physical ther- a, a doctor of physical therapy, and he is a physical therapy supervisor from the centers at St. Camillus. Next up, the latest news about kidney transplants. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Nationwide, there are over 100,000 people on waiting lists for organ donations, and for some, time can simply run out. And kidneys are among the organs with the greatest demand and the greatest transplant success. Here to tell us more about all of this is Dr. Reiner Grusner. He is the Division Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate Medical University and a professor of surgery. Welcome, Dr. Grusner. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. So nationwide kidneys seem to be in very high demand. Why is this happening? Why do we have a shortage nationwide? Well, we have a shortage for many reasons. Um, um, organ transplants can be done either from deceased donors or from living donors. Currently, as you mentioned, we have over 100,000 people waiting for a kidney transplant. We perform about 17,000 a year in the United States. Out of those 17,000, about two-thirds are from deceased donors, one-third is from living donors. So clearly, we can expand in both directions. Uh, there, there are clearly advantages of the living-related kidney transplants. If you look at the half-lives, meaning 50% survival and function, uh, 50% graft function kidney still functioning for a deceased donor kidney is about 8 to 9 years. For a living donor transplant, about 18 to 19 years. So much longer life. Much longer. And if you happen to have an identical twin or a twin sibling, it's about 28 years, so basically wow. a kidney for life. So when I talk about half-lives, that means 50% make it up to 8 or 9 years in case of deceased donors, or uh, 17, 18 years with a living donor, and 15 uh, and 50% go beyond that. So we actually do have an ever-growing number of patients out there because the first kidney transplants, as you know, have been done in the 1950s, um, have had and enjoyed kidney function for 30 or 40 years. So why is this important? <clears throat> the mortality on dialysis is much higher than after a kidney transplant. Um, the other advantage of kidney transplantation is um, they are cheaper than dialysis, and people can go back to work and just enjoy a normal lifestyle again, because as you can imagine, if you go on dialysis three times a week, there's You're only tied so much. To the machine. Absolutely. So I mean, that's that's uh, why. Now, in case of kidney transplantation, there's the huge advantage that we have a fallback option, which is dialysis. Not ideal, not perfect, um, associated with a higher mortality rate and everything else that I mentioned, but it's not a life or death situation. Life For liver heart. transplantation heart. or heart or lungs, we don't have a fallback situation, and that makes it even more dramatic. And many of these um, individual fates are just heartbreaking. So whoever has a friend or someone who is on dialysis should give thought to maybe donating mm-hmm. a kidney or, in the future, um, um, 
giving approval for a loved one who is deceased to donate organs because every patient who dies can potentially save the lives of up to 10 people. With the new technology, is it easier to find a match these days in terms of being able to match people? Yes, I I think in general um, we have made great strides in improving the allocation of organs in such a way that people on an individual basis benefit from it much more than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, So, but despite the fact that on an individual basis we have made great improvements, overall the numbers of kidney transplant have been stagnant since the early 2000s. So the demand has grown, but the supply has not been... Absolutely. You know, commensurate. It hasn't really... Correct. Correct. What, I mean, are there myths attached to it? What seems to stand in the way, for example, of people either donating, either living while they are alive or in the, in, in the event of their death? Well, a multitude of, of um, issues. And first of all, I think um, even now public awareness um, is still somewhat guarded as to what happens if I die, what happens if I donate. Now, to make it absolutely clear, the chances for you donating a kidney today and dying from the procedure is the same as you driving home today or if you happen to be behind the steering wheel right now being involved in a fatal car accident. Well, can it happen? Anything can happen. But the risk of dying after donating or by donating a kidney is about 1 in 10,000. Wow. So it is, it is, it is very, very um, low. And um, in fact, one of the major issues that we're dealing with is, is are the medical issues of donors. Frequently, we have plenty of donors, but they do not qualify because of their own medical issues. What we want is, is um, donors that are in good health so that they are not jeopardized by donating a kidney. And the interesting thing is because these patients tend to be um, followed up for another 5, 10 years, 20 years or so, they have a longer life expectancies than the regular population. Really? So the benefit is, is I mean, you get your yearly updates, and by doing <laughs> so, I mean, if anything happens, I mean, you'll, you'll usually, it's usually caught in an early stage. The other thing is, if you, if you have only one kidney left, ever develop a kidney disease, you will automatically go up to the um, top of the list and have not to wait five or six so? years. Wow. Absolutely, five or six years. So you will get that organ relatively quickly as a perk, basically, for having been a donor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen here with transplant surgeon Dr. Reiner Grusner. We're talking about kidney transplants and some others, as we'll get on in a minute. But um, at this point, it seems to me that not enough people are considering organ donation, as you said, because of fear, but is it and because of the health issues. But is there also are there other myths that stand in the way in terms of I don't know fear of what might happen to them should they put them, their name on a list? I mean, does that seem to enter into it at all? Well, I, I think cultural and religious um, reasons um, come into play. Um, if we look at the ethnic backgrounds um, in the U.S., uh, there are certain groups that um, have a higher donation rate than others. Uh, we just have to accept that. But we can work on it. Um, about uh, 20, 30 years ago, most living donor transplants were done from uh, related uh, people, uh, meaning s- siblings, parents, uh, grandparents, and so forth. But we have opened it up to now spouses, friends, um, and even good Samaritans, people that yeah, come up registries. and say, I want, yeah. exactly, I want to donate a kidney. And then they go into a system, unless they want to make a direct um, donation to someone they happen to know, they then um, um, would be um, looking at a system where that kidney is allocated according to the highest priority. But uh, there, are, there are many of these good Samaritans out there that give another human being a chance of a second life. And uh, they're really our, our heroes because, I mean, they undergo the procedure um, um, just for, for reasons of being a very good person, wanting to help someone else. And uh, that number is slowly growing. It is obviously not there yet to close the gap between the 17,000 transplants that we do and the uh, remaining 80,000 that are waiting. 
But I think awareness is increasing in that regard. And I'm sure, Linda, you have me on the show today to uh, make clear to everyone that this is an option. Uh, insurance companies cover the costs for living donation. And as I mentioned, the risk of a devastating complication or even death of a donor is minimal and probably greater than 1 in 10,000. I think it's very reassuring. So as the division chief now of transplant services here, what other transplants are you looking to introduce or being considered for Upstate at this point? Because I know there are some really on the docket. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just me. <clears throat> I only came here because there was institutional support and a desire to make transplantation grow. Now, you got obviously uh, a number of excellent uh, programs in the, in the city, but in Upstate New, New York, York City. In New York City. Um, but upstate and central New York still has a need. <clears throat> um, I'll give you a few examples. Um, there is not a single major pancreas transplant center in all of New York, and pancreas transplants are done for patients with diabetes. Explain that just briefly. What, you know, you're saying for patients with diabetes, what does a pancreas transplant do? Is it the entire pa uh, pancreas that's replaced or parts of it? Well, let, let me uh, go back then. Um, Diabetes is one of the leading causes of death, um, the number one reason for blindness, for um, amputations, for strokes, for MIs, and so forth, um, and the number one reason for end-stage renal failure. So a good number of patients who need a kidney are also considered for a pancreas transplant. But rather than waiting until the kidney fails, you may want to be proactive and do a pancreas transplant. And by doing so, the patient is no longer diabetic. We primarily do it for patients that are on insulin, high doses of insulin that have problems controlling their blood sugar levels. And there are these wide oscillations between 20 and 1,000. And people, no matter how hard they work with their endocrinologist, just can't control it. So those are patients that can be considered for a pancreas transplant. It's very difficult for a, for a diabetic patient to understand that once you have the transplant, you're no longer diabetic. You suddenly can drink a Coke. You can eat a cookie. You don't have to check your blood sugar three, six, eight times a day. You don't have to inject three, six times a day. You don't have to have sensors and all that. So, I mean, there are many advantages. Um, many people don't know about it because it's a surgical procedure, and diabetes is not considered a surgical disease. And uh, there are also misconceptions as to uh, that it may be a dangerous procedure. But, um, so I help us clarify that. So is it dangerous, first of all? No, no, it is not dangerous. And the risk of dying within the first year, within the first year, is less than 5% for all comers. Now compare that to the regular diabetic population. It is much higher. Now, we, of course, select the patient that undergo a pancreas transplant very carefully. But uh, um, it is the only way today that will establish normal glycemia as we know it. Uh, and just to interrupt you for a moment, sure. so are we replacing the entire pancreas there, or are there parts of the pancreas? No, that we, are, we are replacing the entire pancreas. We are not removing the native pancreas. The native pancreas remains in place because only 2% of the native pancreas produce the produce insulin, insulin. the, the so-called islets. 98% are um, for the digestion of food, secreting enzymes and so forth. So the pancreas, like the kidney, is added to what we already have. It's not like the liver or the heart where we replace those organs. I don't want to run out of time, but I want to ask a couple of questions about this. So is it difficult then to find donors or pancreas? Obviously, you can't. It's not a living donor. So is there a, uh, is there a shortage similar to the, the shortage of kidneys with these types of transplants? No, interestingly enough, Linda, there is not a shortage. We do only about 1,000 pancreas transplants a year. And we have about 7,000 donors a year. Really? So, I mean, there is there's room to grow. And there's also room to grow with islet transplants where we just transplant the cell that produces the insulin. However, That's islet transplants. Islet transplants. So very often this is considered um, um, a vi another viable option. But the results, short and long term, are not as good with islets as they are with pancreas transplants. So the islet transplants are usually reserved for people that have more comorbidities that should not undergo <clears throat> a major surgical procedure because of the increased morbidity and mortality risk. So for a diabetic patient who is on insulin uh, and, and, and high dose of insulin, whose diabetes is not controlled well by whatever exogenous insulin administration is given, um, pancreas and in the future, islet transplantation here at Upstate is an option.
So that's very, very exciting, and it sounds like something that is on the on the docket to, to start that, pretty soon. That is correct. We will um, establish an islet, um, uh, uh, islet transplant laboratory that is both for patients that have diabetes, but also for patients that have chronic pancreatitis, a disease of the pancreas that eventually cripples the pancreas. The patients are in chronic pain, and the only procedure that really helps is to remove the entire pancreas with the side effect of creating surgically induced diabetes mellitus. So for those patients, we take the pancreas out, we preserve the eyes, and we give them back. So the the lab will be in construction over the next few months, and I hope that um, over the coming year, probably July or a little bit later of 2016, we will be in operation and we will offer eyelid transplantation for diabetic patients and eyelid transplantation for patients with chronic pancreatitis. That is very exciting news. I have one last question, and we don't want to run out of time. You're also thinking about, in the future, some kind of a liver transplantation program. Briefly tell us about that. Well, I think there is a need for liver transplantation in Syracuse and the surrounding. There is clearly a need for liver transplantation in children in all of upstate and central um, uh, New York because from Buffalo to Albany, there is not a single center that does pediatric liver transplants. So I think uh, we are going to work, again, the entire institution is committed to, uh, to that um, on a program that eventually will allow patients in this, in this area to undergo a transplant procedure for end-stage liver disease. Rather than having to travel to New York City, uh, there is a, um, a program at Rochester. They're doing about 20 to 30 liver transplants, but there's a much higher demand. If you look at the population from Buffalo to Albany, probably five or six million people. Right. And uh, New York City is 250, 260 miles uh, away. Um, people would have to stay there with their family members in hotels and so forth. Very cumbersome, very expensive. So I think there's clearly a need to establish a major program here in upstate New York. Well, it's very exciting that you came in and shared all this with us. It's very exciting news, all of it. So I thank you very much for coming. My guest has been Dr. Reiner Grusner. He is the, uh, the Division Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate Medical University and a professor of surgery. Next, the essential role that food plays in social justice. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, this year, a broad coalition of grassroots organizations, nonprofits, community gardeners organized the first Syracuse Food Justice Symposium. Now, the focus was on taking back our health through community gardens and urban agriculture. Well, here with more on all of this are Dr. Travis Hobart and Dr. Joseph Nima. They are both assistant professors of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Dr. Hobart, this year marked the first ever Syracuse Food Justice Symposium. Tell us about it. I mean, what what is it or what was it? Uh, so what we did for the uh, symposium was bring together a wide group of stakeholders, um, including people from uh, healthcare, people from nonprofit organizations, um, the Cornell Cooperative Extension, um, a couple faith organizations, the Brady Faith Center, and ACTS. Um, and we came together to try to share ideas and come up with best practices for improving the diets and the health of people in the community. Um, and our main focus was uh, around uh, community gardening and um, and farming in the city. To but what was the, I mean, obviously there was an impetus for this. In other words, are you feeling that the nutrition in a particular area is not up to par? I yes. Mean, and, and, you know, tell us more about that in terms of access or what have you to, to fresh right. fruits and vegetables. So, yeah, so um, unfortunately in, in certain areas, in particular in Syracuse in the city, um, uh, there's less access to healthy fruit foods. Um, a, a lot of the, there aren't a lot of supermarkets in, in the city, um, and a lot of the stores that do sell food don't have the healthiest options available. 
Um, so this was a, a group of people interested in trying to change that um, and trying to, to educate people about what is healthy and also make more healthy food available to people. But in doing that through this whole idea of actually setting up community gardens and people growing their own fruits and vegetables to whatever degree they could. Yes, exactly. So, Dr. Nima, how did you get involved in all of this? I mean, obviously, pediatricians are crucially important in health, but what moved you to this particular effort? Yeah, so Dr. Hobart and I, Travis and I both um, developed a personal interest in gardening and then had ideas about how that could expand to working with the patients that we serve. Um, we got involved last year in a program that worked at the Dr. King Elementary School called Spring Sprouts. It was an educational program that we rolled out with some of the fourth year medical students to teach them how to grow plants and educate them about food and see if that could make a difference in terms of what food choices they made and things like that. Uh, and through that program, we actually ended up meeting uh, the person from Cornell Co-op who was one of the leaders of the organization of the symposium. Uh, so we had some personal interest and then some professional interest in terms of educating our kids. And then that led us to collaborating with some of the people that were working on the symposium. So the symposium was really just a gathering of people to figure out ways or action plans to put all this into effect. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think on the first annual basis, uh, what this did more than anything was, number one, helped people brainstorm. Number two, help people share resources. And number three, really do a good needs assessment of uh, how we can help our community grow and thrive uh, by way of gardening and what that has to offer to people. Um, I think that plans started to come out of this and will continue to come out of this, but uh, because this hasn't been done before and because there's a lot of isolated organizations in the community that are doing things uh, sort of on their own, I think this was a way to bring a lot of like minds together to try to brainstorm about how to do it in a more collaborative way. So at this point, have those gardens you know, taken root, so to speak, or <laughs> no or pun it, intended, right? right no pun um, intended, or was it, or was it more of it just the theory or the the concept that so you worked on? There are a, a number of gardens in Syracuse already, um, and there's a, a group called Syracuse Grows that actually helps to share ideas and oversee a lot of them. Um, uh, and it's a volunteer organization, so I think you know a lot of people have become involved with that. Um, I think. Joe and I were both surprised at how much was already happening with, with this um, movement, I guess you call it. Um, but I think there needs to be this. The, the reason that this symposium was really great was because we brought everybody together and we had a really a conversation between all of the different players in, 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 the, in the community. And I think one thing that we want to make sure to, to maintain is, is really the, the people in the community as opposed to just the people, you know, People like us who are sort of acad ac academic institution, kind of imposing. Um, on yeah, the we don't want exactly. You we want don't the want community to, be... to gra literally grassroots again. Yes, <laughs> not to be <laughs> no pun intended with the growing <clears throat> metaphor, but that whole idea of people basically picking up on this idea within the community. Right. <clears throat> I think one of the things that we learned the most was uh, that the people in the community know the best what they need. Uh, and I think what surprised me the most, and I think I can probably speak for Travis as well, is how much we learned about what we don't know and about um, how to try to figure out what our role is. Uh, that takes time for us to learn because what we don't want to do is come in and say, hey, we think you need this. That's not the point. The point is for us to say, we have a certain skill set. You have a certain need. How can we use our skill set to help you the most? So mm -hmm. we talk about, or I made some allusion to the fact that this is a food justice Define for me, either of you, what is food justice in your mind? Um, so, so I think there have been a lot of terms thrown around over time about, about this, um, and I think now the sort of popular way to refer to it is food justice, um, and that's making sure that as a, um, that everyone in the community has an equal affordable access to healthy food, okay? Um, and I think, you know, coming from a health perspective, we've looked at it in terms of uh, obesity um, and food insecurity as being two, uh, two different factors that, that are both related, even though they don't seem to be related. Um, and food insecurity, meaning that somebody that a household has had trouble over the past year um, uh, and had to think about how to afford enough food, you know, had to, had to provide uh, nutritious food. Exactly. Um, and, and about in the U.S., about 14 percent of households have some level of food insecurity over the last year. Um, so it's not a small um, number. 
Um, and and Syracuse, um, the city itself, has a particularly high level of poverty. And so the, the numbers for Syracuse itself are hard to find, but I think that it's probably even higher than this, the country as a whole. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatricians Dr. Travis Hobart and Dr. Joseph Nima. We're talking about food justice and health and an initiative that they've become involved in locally to try to promote Local gardens, actually. So where else is this happening in the country? I mean, is it something, obviously, Syracuse has a particular need and concern. Do you, I mean, is this something, and, and Dr. Hobart alluded to the fact that these terms have been used elsewhere. So obviously, this is a concern that exists probably, I'm going to guess, worldwide in some ways when you talk about food access and food justice. But is it hap- these kinds of things in terms of working with local populations, is that happening elsewhere as well, Dr. Nima? Yeah, this is certainly a growing movement uh, throughout the country and I would imagine throughout the world, but especially in the United States, Travis and I have spent some effort looking into what initiatives have been done in other places. Um, uh, one of the ways that I became interested in this was I happened to be watching a TED Talk by a guy named Ron Finley, who's from Los Angeles. Uh, he has a group of urban gardeners that he works with there. And uh, I was fascinated by what he had to say. One of the things he said is if kids grow tomatoes, they eat tomatoes. And if they grow kale, they eat kale. Wow. I happened to remember that. <laughs> I and like it that. stuck out in my mind that, uh, so this guy has a concept that rings really true to me. And he has this whole movement in LA. Uh, the keynote speaker for our symposium was a gentleman named Malikia. Keeney. He works in Detroit um, uh, and is a, a major player in his community as far as uh, developing a large urban farm on what used to be a park that was closed um, and using that to promote uh, health and community growth where he is. It's a, Obviously, um, Detroit has had problems with bankruptcy and financial issues, and the food desert there is a very real problem. Uh, that's just two examples, I think, of what's happened in a number of places throughout the country. It's pretty exciting, actually, to think that that is going on, especially when you think of something like that a park being closed and then being re-purposed kind of for something mm-hmm. so healthful and beneficial. Okay. So what's been your experience in terms of your own experience that you mentioned your experience with the community in terms of people's um, embracing this notion of if you grow it you eat it either of you I mean do you think that there is a receptivity to this idea and a willingness to get engaged in it yeah I do and and I think I guess the first thing that pops to mind is is one of the people at the conference her name is Twiggy Ballou Um, she runs it's called the um the Southwest Community, community, Fa- community, uh, community Farm, farm yeah. yeah, at um, Jubilee Homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, she will tell you she works in the community and she finds that when people start helping on the farm or working on the farm, they they really do get fully involved and they, and they seem to improve their, um, not only their nutrition, but also uh, they, they gain skills. She, she particularly talks about some of the teenagers that work there and they gain skills for um, selling, they go to the farmer's market and they sell the produce there. Um, and so these, these teens gain some life skills that are really useful as they grow older and they find jobs and things like that. So there's a lot of spinoffs. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And, and she, you know, she had an example, I think it was a refugee girl that really kind of started working at the farm and really came out of her shell and was, you know, gaining all these skills and really has become really successful because of that. And Twiggy almost, she's, she's the sort of the head farmer, but she's also like the mentor and that, you know, helps to, to build, uh, build the lives of these young people. So a real role model. Yeah. As well. Very much. I'd be remiss if we didn't mention Mabel Wilson's name. Uh, Mabel is uh, one of the community activists that was, uh, it was really her brainchild. The uh, Food Justice Symposium really came from her. Uh, She's lived in Syracuse for most of her life, knows the history of of urban gardening going way back uh, in uh, Syracuse's history. And uh, her take on the inherent value of growing food for yourself, for your family, and the nutritious value of it and what it does for the community was very, very obvious to everybody that spoke with her and worked with her on this project. Um, And so I think that that's a single example, as is Twiggy, uh, as is somebody like Mike Atkins, uh, who is doing work at the Dr. King School and also with a number of other organizations to promote urban gardening and is looking to open another one-acre farm similar to Twiggy's. Um, those are all concrete examples of people who 
know the inherent value of doing this and know that it's not just about growing food, that growing food is a piece of what happens, but growing the community is really what comes from that role modeling, uh, helping uh, build uh, um, roots for people that are growing up in those communities and give them a vision for what they want their future to and be. And even to have a stake in perhaps their own destiny. It seems mm, to me exactly. if you grow your own food, you have you, as a buy-in to, in a sense, your own destiny. It mm -hmm. gives you a connectedness mm -hmm. to yeah. your own resources as opposed to maybe just going to a store and making that barter, you mm -hmm. know, for the for the dollar you spend versus actually investing in mm -hmm. that whole process. So there's a really a lot to be said for it. Yeah, I, I think it's very exciting. <clears throat> what new plans or any further plans have grown out of this? We only have a little bit of time left. Yeah, so, uh, so I think uh, Joe and I are actually meeting tomorrow with a couple of different people, both um, uh, Twiggy, actually, and um, and then uh, we'll be also meeting with the, the food bank of CNY. Um, so I think a couple things, I think the main thing we're looking to do, because we're pediatricians, we're coming at this at a health perspective, is just trying to do some kind of needs assessment or is there, you know, what is the health impacts or what are the health impacts of, of this um, and how can we add to that and, and help help figure out how, how can this go forward and be the most health for the most number of people. Um, and then in our clinics, what we're actually hoping to do as well is, is get uh, start asking people about their food insecurity and on a regular basis. And that's actually recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics to ask about food insecurity. Um, and that's why we're meeting with the food bank to hopefully um, find a way, a method to help people that we identify as being food insecure. To give them a to resource. Go. Exactly. Yeah. That's really very interesting because you don't think quite often that that would be a part of a routine health examination. Right. You know, are you having trouble feeding yourself, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But clearly it is, a, it is a real concern, and clearly it has all kinds of ramifications for health. Yeah, and, and we didn't talk about it much, but when you look at, there is some research um, that shows that people do have health problems that are food insecure, you know, that does lead to long-term health Well, like you said earlier. Many health problems, yeah. physical health problems, mental health problems, all kinds of things that come from... Uh, both obesity and food insecurity. So we're trying to address that by getting out of the office a little bit and taking this on a whole different level of public health. Well, I, I applaud your efforts, um, very, very, very um, noble efforts, and I think it will be beneficial to the entire community. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this. My guests have been Dr. Travis Hobart and Dr. Joseph Nima. They're both assistant professors of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Thanks again. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Ruth McKay is a marriage and family therapist here in central New York. I would like to read an excerpt from her essay, Innocence in the Face of Darkness. She deftly traces how families can get trapped in disturbing patterns of cruelty and abuse. For 17 years, I worked with women who were parents of young children, each woman struggled with something that had come to be called severe and persistent mental illness. Some of these women had experienced early betrayal and abandonment and felt a deep and raging loneliness that was carried into the present, even into their relationships with their own children. Some felt abandonment when a one-year-old child showed joy at walking independently instead of longing to be carried close. Some wore visible scars of the emotional imbalance caused by unforgotten pain, fine or jagged lines along their wrists and inner arms that mapped out desperate attempts to find a release from unendurable suffering. Rosemary tested me by uncovering the thick, brutal scars on her arms during our first meeting at her children's daycare, as if to ask, can you take this, honey? Because if you can't, I want you to hit the road now and not make promises of being there for me that you can't keep. Rosemary had two children, a girl and a boy. The boy was almost three and had significant developmental problems, but was a happy, friendly child, often smiling and wanting to show me some latest find from the street or the thrift stores his mother liked to search out. 
His four-year-old sister had some behavioral issues, sometimes withdrawn and mute, sometimes moving with bursts of energy and a willfulness against her mother's direction and grip. With her pale, smooth skin and white gold hair falling in unkempt waves and ringlets, she looked like one of her mother's dolls. At our last meeting, I arrived at our usual appointment time to find Rosemary uncharacteristically wearing makeup, thick, garish, preparing to go out and seeming surprised to see me. She reported that one of the new neighbors came over now and babysat while she went to the bus station in the evening to pick up some extra money to buy the trinkets for her kids that brought her such delight and were like good mother badges to her. So she had returned to prostitution, she was letting me know, and I was feeling uneasy, wondering if I would hear enough to get help from Children's Protective Services. The babysitter then came into the room where Rosemary and I were standing talking, entering from a room where Rosemary had told me her daughter was napping after preschool. Oh, he just lies down with her to help her fall asleep, Rosemary said, looking at me, her denial disappearing for a silent second in our locked gaze. The freckled, red-haired young man, barefoot and wearing a sleeveless T-shirt over his muscled 14-year-old wiry frame, finished buckling his thick leather belt and introduced himself to me, trying to cajole me into seeing him as nothing but a child himself, as he had done with Rosemary. But the innocence he copied with his sly smile was a poor cover for the darkness he saw me see in him. The knot returns to my stomach now, not just for what happened to the child, but for Rosemary's having to live with what she had allowed to happen, for what she chose over protecting her child, for letting her daughter take steps along the dark and dangerous path that had long ago led to the scars on her arms. for joining us for Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we get an update on ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and we learn how to avoid common device-related hand injuries, plus how to create green and sustainable buildings. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.